one of the keys to being successful at helping them is realizing that they don't know what those tasks are a lot of times, most of the time. They often think they do, but it's quite often because they haven't ever purchased your type of software or your type of service that they don't really know exactly how they need to go through that, what those tasks are and how to go through that. And I often hear salespeople, and I used to say this a lot myself, and I'm still tempted to <laughs> from time to time, you know, what, what do you think the next steps are? What is the best next step? You know, and ask the client. And I'm not saying it's 100% illegal to say that kind of question, to ask that kind of question, but it's so much better to have deep experience in the buying process and then say, hey, you know, here's where we've been. This is where you want to go, right? And if so, this is what the recommended next step is. What do you think about that? Does that sound good to you? friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now that was Garen Hess. Garen's the founder and CEO of Consensus and the author of a book titled Selling is Easy, Buying is Hard. How Buyer Enablement Drives Digital Sales Transformation and Shortens Sales Cycles. Now in this conversation with Garen, we talk about a change of perspective that sellers need to adopt about selling and about buying, namely that sellers don't close deals buyers close deals. And that B2B sales isn't really about what sellers are doing. It's about what your buyers are doing. And your job is to enable your buyers to buy. I mean, I believe this is a huge issue. I'm so glad we're going to talk about it because I believe this lack of alignment between sellers and buyers is the single biggest impediment to improving sales performance across the board. And Garen is one of the few people I know who really gets it. And he's written an interesting book about this that we're going to dive into. So all this and much, much more, but before we get to Garen, let me say that we are incredibly thankful and grateful for all of you who listen to the show. Without you, we are nothing, and we're humbled by your support, and we'll work hard to continue to earn your attention for future shows. All right, let's jump into it. Garen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. It's great to be on the show. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. So uh, where are you hanging out these days? Uh, I hail from Saratoga Springs, Utah. We're just about 20 minutes south of Salt Lake City. And like everybody else working from home, I've got a beautiful location near uh, what is the largest natural freshwater lake west of the Mississippi called Utah Lake. And um, wait, the largest freshwater lake? Wait, I thought that was flat. I thought that was Flathead Lake. So, in terms of surface area and natural, right? There are reservoirs that are bigger, but mm. uh, but yeah, Utah Lake has the largest surface area. And is it From what I understand, now you're making me question my own <laughs> assumptions. <laughs> so I always have something to brag about here, man. You're you're taking it away from me. <laughs> you asked the wrong person that thing. My mind is full of useless trivia that surfaces just. Well, now you're going to have to look it up and, and let me know if I'm right or you're right. <laughs> All right. So, I'll, well, that's what the internet's for, right? So, <laughs> that's right. Why don't you sing a song while I do that? <laughs> Uh, Let's just a see. plethora to choose from. <laughs> uh, largest, what do we call it? Largest freshwater lake? Natural freshwater lake. Oh, natural. Natural. Fresh, I know, compelling radio for people. Uh, <laughs> sure, everyone's dying to know this. <laughs> well, that's the thing about the internet. There's, huh. Wow. They have a largest. <laughs> well, why did they come up with a third option? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, was, I think we'll have to come back to that one. <laughs> they're not, they're not uh, being very cooperative. All right. <laughs> Maybe my 
trusted a producer can, uh, if he's listening, can uh, look that up. Largest freshwater lake west of the Mississippi. Uh, so, besides talking about lakes, we're, we are going to talk about your new book. And <laughs> I know there's a connection there. That's a good segue. So, your book, Selling is Easy, Buying is Hard, How Buyer Enablement Drives Digital Sales Transformation and Shortens Sales Cycle. So, that's almost a book in itself right there. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It's always hard to come up with the subtitle, but um, <laughs> I wanted to really emphasize the shortening the sales cycle. Um, but there's so many principles that can help organizations that are moving to a digital strategy, which really we had this all worked out long before the coronavirus hit. But now, of course, all organizations are have by force of nature moved to a digital selling strategy or are still trying to get there. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think it turned out to be pretty timely. So I, I like, I forget where in the book this was, but um, you said that someone had a, saw, cited somebody with a t-shirt that's the, or may a teacher should have said, uh, yeah. my buyers close deals as opposed to I close deals, which, you know, that, that whole sentiment is anathema to most sellers and certainly the way we, we train them. But it's to me, in my mind, that's a real mindset shift. We should, should uh, try to incorporate into sales. Yeah, I mean, I literally have seen people wear these T-shirts, I close deals, right? Which, yeah, I like the confident nature of them. But it is really an arrogant position in a lot of ways because, and an impossibility because (laughs) they can't close a deal. They cannot sign the contract on behalf of the customer. And granted, there are many techniques, of course, and strategies to, to try to get to that closing moment and I'm not trying to downplay those, but I'm trying to emphasize the fact that the reality is that the only way to close a B2B sale is to discover and engage the buying group and get them in alignment. And one of them or more of them, one or more of them is going to sign the contract. You ultimately have very little to do with it. Uh, they have a lot of jobs that they have to get done, uh, meaning tasks that they have to do to, to make a purchase decision. And you're only role really is to facilitate. You you need to become an expert at what those tasks are, anticipate them before they come up, and facilitate that. And I would argue in in a lot of ways that B2B sales in its entirety is is simply facilitating that buying group and the different stakeholders there. Yeah, I mean, as I read the book, I I caught that, and we'll talk about that. I'm not sure I go that far, but I mean, I think there's a lot to to agree with that. Um, I mean, to your first point about closing, I mean, yeah, this has been a you know bugaboo of mine for a long time, which is <laughs> to ask ask people who claim they're closers. I said, oh, really? So when was, <laughs> when was the last time you were in the room when the buyer made the purchase decision? Right. <laughs> yeah. <Good> Dead <laughs> silence. <laughs> Crickets. Right. <laughs> you weren't there. So. That's right. This whole myth of a closer, I mean, maybe if you're in insurance sales, car sales, I mean, there are certain areas of sales where, you know, people do make decisions right in front of you. Not so much in business-to-business sales. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, Gartner has this research that shows that, you know, the buyers are spending only 17% of their time with the vendor in their, mm-hmm. their the vendors, plural, yeah. in their well, I mean, buying, I'm surprised purchasing, their purchasing decision process. and. Yeah, well, no, I said, I think that I'm surprised it's that much, right? I mean, I think that, yeah. that 
um, it'd be interesting to see what they include with that. Do they include reading the emails from people, you know, reading the content they're provided in that 17%? Yeah, then maybe we can start start getting in the ballpark. But yeah, the number's low, regardless of, of what yeah. it is. And it's sort of interesting. It's why I I posted this post on LinkedIn yesterday about sort of taking a jab at this whole idea that all these books have been rushed to market on virtual selling. And mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I, I made the comment. I said, you know, this is going to be like social selling, which after a while we decided is just part of selling. And mm-hmm. I said, you know, virtual selling, salespeople been doing since the invention of the telephone. Yeah. Right? They weren't in person. They were virtual with, right. the, with the buyer. So yep. for me, good sales behaviors are good sales behaviors regardless of the medium. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, the medium doesn't matter. That's my new hashtag. Yep. Hashtag medium doesn't matter. <laughs> I agree. And yeah, so so yeah, this whole seventeen percent thing. And the reason that came up was just like, yeah, I mean, I, I <laughs> spent a good chunk of my career selling very large, very expensive, very complex communication systems for a number of different startups all over the world. And yeah, I mean, the first big one I closed, which was with a company in in Sweden. I visited once. Yep. Everything else was on the phone. Yeah. This was a multi, multiple million dollar deal back in the eighties. So you know, much bigger yeah, I mean, today. All of inside sales is, is has been virtual to that extent. I, I think. Yeah. The, the, well, also, the it's never been the, one thing or the other. That's the thing. It's, yeah, you know, it's true. I mean, I, I was technically we were in the field, but we had judiciously go visit the customers when it was important. Otherwise, we did it virtually. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the shift that's happening though is that you're spending less time, even though it's virtual, meaning you've been on the telephone or you might be on uh, some kind of uh, web conferencing. Um, the shift that's happening is they're they're wanting to spend less and less time in a live conversation. It's more asynchronous, so it's virtual in the sense that you're not even having a live conversation. So one of the key questions I think today is how how do you asynchronously help the buyers do what they need to do and learn what they need to learn and and take the actions and and work through the tasks they need to even when you're not there and and I think core to that whole thing is you're typically working with a champion that uh, is doing a lot of that work when you're not around and you often don't get to engage those other stakeholders yourself ever uh, you might see them on an email chain if you're lucky mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it's rare that you get to even talk to them on the phone or in a web conference meeting and so that champion has to go out there and be your surrogate self and trying to help educate and pitch and uh, bring along the other stakeholders. And the, the, one of the fundamental questions in buyer enablement is what is it that they really need uh, to be successful in that role? And I, I think it's previously been you know, thought of, it's not like no one's ever thought of how can I help my champion be successful, but it's, it hasn't received uh, enough thorough treatment because I, and I think the reason for that is because the emphasis is on what do I need to do as a salesperson rather than what does that champion need to do internally? And um, so it goes so far to, to, um, I mean, to underscore this uh, sales teams will in their, in their forecasting meetings, will talk about things that they've done and uh, rather than what their their buyers are doing to forecast a deal, you know, I've sent a proposal, I gave mm-hmm. a demo, mm-hmm. uh, I, I did all of this, and and 
and I, and I think it's just, you know, at the core of, of buyer enablement is this just fundamental shift out of ourselves and into the buyer's world and into the buyer's mind and, and trying to understand their, that they, they and their problems are the center of their universe. <laughs> and if we can somehow, uh, get pulled into their orbit in a way that we are uh, are really deeply aware of what is what's driving them both intellectually emotionally and you know systemically inside the organization and and get inside their mind then uh, you know we've got a better shot at at helping them make the fundamental changes they need to 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 adopt a new solution or a new product yeah, yeah, no, no disagreement on that that front at all. So I let's take a step back though on that is is yeah. because I think that that a, along the lines of what you're talking about is is a helpful construct to sort of think about is you know there's this theory and uh, Christian Clayton Christensen excuse me talked about in his book uh, Innovator's Dilemma is about this idea of jobs to be done and certainly has been written about in a lot of other places is that that yeah, you know, the act of a buyer making a purchase decision is a job they need to get done. It we'll talk about it has multiple components to it, but to some degree, they're hiring you as a seller to help them get that job done. Right. And I think it's a I think it's a, a good way for people to sort of look at it. And then it, the next step then is well, what is this job they're trying to get done? And yeah. and for me, I think yeah, you know, they're. They're trying to, and this has come from a couple sources, but I think it makes a lot of sense, is that you know, they're trying to, what your buyers fundamentally are trying to do is they're trying to quickly gather the information they need to make a good decision with the least investment of time, money, and resources possible. Right. Yeah, and I, I think you know, that's a, that is a very high level. And then if you start breaking that down, uh, they have to do some core sort of milestone tasks and in each of those they've got sometimes dozens of smaller tasks they have to accomplish sure. and and I think one of the keys to being successful at helping them is realizing that they don't know what those tasks are a lot of times most of the time they th- they often think they do uh, but it's quite often because they haven't ever purchased your type of software or your type of service that they don't really know exactly how they need to go through that, those what those tasks are, and 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 how to go through that. And um, I often hear hear salespeople, and I used to say this a lot myself, and I'm still tempted to <laughs> from time to time. You know, what what do you think the next steps are? What 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 is the best next step? You know, and ask the client. And I'm not saying it's a hundred percent, you know, illegal to say that kind of question to ask that kind of question, but. It's so much better to have deep experience in the buying process and then say, hey, you know, here's where we've been. This is where you want to go, right? And if so, this is what the recommended next step is. What do you think about that? Does that sound good to you? And if and a lot of times the buyers, you know, they'll chime in with other other nuances, but they they appreciate the confident leadership that a that a buying coach, you might say, can bring to the process. Um and it builds trust and confidence in getting yeah. those tasks done ultimately. Yeah, getting those tasks done. We're gonna dig into some of those tasks. But I I agree. I mean it's it's a different mindset for sellers. Yeah. As you said, it's it's not about closing a deal, it's not about getting an order. It's about 
as I like to say, you know, sales is fundamentally about helping your buyer make a purchase decision. Yeah. And that's that should be your motivating your motivator, your personal motivator as you go forth every day is how can I help my buyer make a purchase decision? Obviously it's gonna lead down the the path of the buyer enablement you talk about, but but it's a different mind, completely different mindset than I'm here to make quota. Yeah, exactly. And I and I think even to take it a step further, it's helping the buyer make the change, uh, facilitate the change in their own organization that they want with the purchase. So behind the purchase is some larger objective. I mean, there are sure. lots of reasons, but yeah, they have to make that purchase in order to achieve that. And um, and so the more we we get behind whatever that that objective is, uh, can is really where I think a lot of the where the alignment can come if we can can see past the 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 close to the the overall objective that they have personally and as an organization. Yeah, well, I th- I, th- I agree. I just part of it's you know, as so you read, I spent a lot of time reading books and you know, yeah, being involved <laughs> yeah. in sales in a long time is is that yeah. You know, for me, it's like a let's simplify it as much as possible. B is let's understand there are lots of small moments or small steps involved in this. And that, yeah, it's great to say, look, you know, buyers really looking forward to, to what they can achieve using the product and service they bought. But for me, that's like a whole separate process. That's a separate job. And really as a seller, I want to focus on this first job, which is helping them make that decision. Yep. Because yeah, there's an implementation part of it and so on, but that's not my responsibility. And, you know, these days, less and less, depending on the organization. But and we're going to take that into account. But yeah, first and foremost, is I have to be able to help them make that decision. And and I, I, what gets to me sometimes when I'm I'm reading, yeah, about buyer enablement, and not in your book necessarily, but it's it's like there's sort of an assumption that a lot of that process is to get them to. Um, agree to buy what we're selling as opposed to just helping them decide what the problem is that they're trying to solve, what are their options for solving it, and helping them make that choice that ultimately is us as the ven- as the way, the path they want to use to solve it. Yeah, I agree. And I think what's ironic about that aspect in, in B2B sales is the more we want the deal, and the more we focus on getting the deal, the less effective we are at getting the deal. And mm-hmm. the more we focus on not getting the deal, but rather helping the buyer get where they want to go and make an effective decision, the more likely we will be to get the deal because it builds so much trust. And um, it's it's one of those those integrity issues that is uh, like all integrity issues in my opinion seem scary sometimes because they you might be afraid it's going to cost you but in reality it ends up benefiting you and um and it, and it, at the core of it is one of those key decisions that we have to make just internally that we're not going to try to bring out a bad customer and you know this is not necessarily buyer enablement specific but just mm-hmm. It's really if we focus on what those buyers' needs are and try to help help them uh, achieve that, then there's a possibility that our solution isn't the you know the the right solution for them. But as we guide them through that with a with an authentic 
perspective um, through the through those decisions and and tasks, then it, it increased so much trust that you're just much more likely to get that purchase anyway. So it's it's a bit of a paradox because you feel like if I don't concentrate on what I need, I'm not going to get what I need. But in reality, that that's the least effective way to get what you need. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's, it's, it's true. It's true. It's but like you, yeah. But Sorry, the thing is, we we sort of support that. Unfortunately, the bad side of that in in the way we we hire. So, for instance, let's just start with the hire and train, mm-hmm. is and in some cases enable sellers is, hey, you know, look let's look at the typical job description. What are the attributes we want this this salesperson to have? And just you know, painting and sort of broad brushstrokes. We talk about. You know, hunter, closer, extrovert, da 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 da, and not every company does this, but we see these. This or the subtext is this in a job description, and you know, I'll ask hiring managers. I'll say, "Well, hang on, just a second. So, here's what you're thinking. Thinking you need. So now, rewrite this job description from the perspective of what the buyer needs from you in order to make yeah. their decision." Yeah, I love that. I mean, and uh, it's like and, uh, it's like yep. you know, talking a different language. Yeah, right. But that's that's the thing is is yeah. I've maybe heard me say it, but I've you know I've used this expression and post online before. I said you know the one what's the one question a customer will never ask you? They'll never ask you to be more salesy. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, yeah. Nobody wants to be sold to. They want to be educated. Yeah. They yeah. want to be led and guided through the process. You know, because if it's if it's uncomfortable for them, which it usually is. Um, yeah, I, I liken it just to a simple go walk into the furniture store. You just, if, if the person that approaches you, uh, you believe they were really going to be helpful rather than trying to sell you, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't avoid them. But most of the time you want to avoid that person that tried to approach you in the <laughs> furniture store as soon as you walk through the doors, <laughs> because you know, you're going to get sold to rather than, than, uh, guided. Well, unfortunately, yeah. But when you find the people that that don't, then it's always such a refreshing experience. But I, it is, I and that yeah. that you know, speaks directly to something you wrote about in the book, which is, you know, buyers will usually buy from those vendors who make their buying experience easier and more enjoyable. And yeah, you know, I think it's back in the challenger sale. Didn't wasn't the stat in the challenger sale? Fifty three percent of the purchase decision criteria is based on the buying experience itself. Yeah, something like that, right? Yeah. So yeah. already at, at that point. You know, majority. When I think it's probably even become more so in the years subsequent to this, is the buying experience is the critical, most decisive factor in getting the deal. Yes, yeah, and I I think about why do we buy from Amazon, right? Amazon has fundamentally turned the retail buying experience upside down, and the reason I've been so successful, and you could argue that there are lots of different reasons, but I would say the the main strategic reason they're successful is because they've made retail buying so easy. It's so easy that even if you can get the same thing for the same price or even a cheaper price from somewhere else, you say something's $10 cheaper, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times you'll still buy it through Amazon because all you got to do is go in and click a couple buttons and it shows up in a couple of days. And I think that's the problem that ultimately I'm trying to solve uh, as a as a professional in the B2B sales sales or B2B mm-hmm. buying space is how do we make B2B buying easier? Because uh, both from a technology standpoint and from 
a process standpoint. If we can make it easier, uh, those vendors that make it easier will get more sales. And ultimately, it, it comes for me from a point, a, a position of frustration because buying other B2B items uh, like software is incredibly frustrating. And it just bothers me that it's still so difficult. Uh, you know, there's one graphic, speaking of Gartner, that they have where they, they say in this buyer enablement paper they have, where they say, we, we think that this process is a linear process, but it's not. It's this big tangled spaghetti right, mess. Right, the spaghetti diagram. I talk about it yeah. often. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, that it shouldn't have to be that way. Uh, a lot of those tasks are still going to have to happen, but the the vendors that figure out how to make those tasks as simple as possible and help help lay out the journey as simply as possible and then lead with authority and you know pers- persistent but uh, polite authority um, are going to win so much more often than than those that just keep doing things the same old way yeah well, and that diagram I think it's always so interesting about it and and people can find it online the Gartner buyer enablement buyer journey diagram and mm-hmm. I've shared it on social many times yeah is is that Implicit in that is, I believe, is this thought that basically in the minds of a lot of buyers, sales doesn't add much value to this process. Because yeah. if you look in this complex, densely, densely detailed diagram of, of a buyer's journey, the word sales shows up once. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, A, that's on us, right? And I think that's that's partially because the way we are training and orienting people based on people we hire and what we tell them their task is, is something that's just not very viable to most buyers. So in that diagram, you know, we talk about these subtasks, the four tasks, four jobs that buyers need to get done. And I think my experience is selling to large enterprises has been exactly that, is that first job is they got to define the problem, identify the problem. Explore possible solutions is the next one. Third one is define your requirement, what it is you're going to do, and the and how you're going to solve the problem. The fourth one is who you're going to solve it with. Choose a vendor. And I think that the way that we train sellers and orient our sellers is we have them focused on the last job, which is selecting a vendor. Mm-hmm. Whereas the winning path is to help the buyer throughout <laughs> to accomplish all four of those jobs. That's right. And I, I think that, that key word that you mentioned is just helping them. The The goal of the salesperson is really a service-oriented profession where you're trying to help them get through these these different tasks and and all the way through from from that those early stages and, and, and from the organizational standpoint. Sometimes the sellers don't get involved as early, right? There's all that evidence that uh, buyers are spending more and more time before they engage with sales but if the smart organizations will proactively try to insert this the sellers or or you know as we retitle them buying coaches um to (laughs) to earlier in the process (laughs) yeah well i mean but it's i think this is this is such a a big dividing line in sales is that yeah I, i we are telling people that and training people that your job is to persuade somebody to buy your product. 
And yeah, right. First of all, there, uh, there's a new book out. Um, it was released in spring, but I think they serve, are going to re-release it in the fall by a professor from Wharton, Jonah Berger, who have interviewed for the show. And in the book, he says, yeah, the research is pretty clear. People have a persuasion resistance. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if your de facto MO is, <laughs> I'm going to train you how to be a persuasive seller. Right. What we're saying is we're going to train you to act in a way that the buyers we'll resist. the walls naturally. up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Here's how you get the walls to go up. <laughs> and how many books are out there saying the persuasive seller, the persuasive seller? And the thing is, when you yeah. look up the definition of persuasion, persuasion is, you know, it's a little bit coercive. Right? It's, right. It's, yeah, it's, definitely can be. Yeah. Whereas I think our job is really to, in B2B sales, especially in the enterprise spaces, our job is to influence that outcome of that process that the buyer is going through. And it's a right. completely different way of orienting yourself to how you're trying to help them get their job done. It is. And I, I think one of the fundamental mind shifts that I want my readers and our customers to, to go through is that the, the buyers are actually in charge of the selling because they have to go out and sell the platform to all the other stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And your goal is really just to help them be the best salesperson inside the organization that they can be. And and you as the the seller are in charge of the buying because you're the only person who has been you and your your collective intelligence your hive mind has been through hundreds maybe thousands or tens of thousands of buying journeys with these buyers and you have that collective intelligence that your buyer isn't aware of they don't they don't know that whole journey they don't know those tasks and steps and so you've got to be in charge of the buying process and guide them through it um, the the strange thing is is the sellers and the buyers aren't really aware of that unless unless the seller is aware of it and then it can educate the buyer and the buyer often thinks that they know exactly what needs to happen and inevitably and you've probably seen this hundreds of times where the buyer tells you oh yeah we can get this done or you know i'm the decision maker or oh, we don't need to get legal or IT involved, we can just sign this service order or whatever it may be that they say. And uh, you know, an inexperienced salesperson will say, oh, this is great. Uh, when in reality, you know from your own experience that 99% of the time, this is not going to work out well. But the buyer doesn't know that. And if you're really a, an effective at buyer enablement, you're going to say, you know, uh, thanks for sharing that with me. What I've seen in organizations like yours is that it's almost always like this. Would it be all right if we with you if we go down this path and get this mm-hmm. stakeholder involved and get and just verify that this isn't needed at your organization because otherwise it's going to come back to bite us. And so it's really this this shift of the salesperson's in charge of the buying and the buyer's in charge of the selling. And if you make that shift as your fundamental MO in terms of how you approach going after the purchase decision, which I, I like calling it a purchase decision rather than a, a deal or a sale, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, then you are, you're, you're, you're more likely to do the things that they, they need to be successful and, and then they'll come back and you'll get your deal done. I agree. And I, I love the way you, you put that is, is I think that, you know, along with that is this requirement to, to, you know, I call influence versus persuasion is, is that, if you're able to influence 
how they look at the problem they have to be solved, the choices, the options they gather to put together that they're going to choose from, right? Because this is the way decision-making works, is you, know, is you decide whether you're going to make a change or not. Uh, preliminarily, you have to identify your problem. You put together options for solving the problem. You choose one of the options. You go out for bid. Or you know, go out and talk to salespeople. Is If you try to get somebody to sell internally, if you're trying to get them to repeat a story you've told them that's you know comes from the the motivation of persuasion, as opposed to helping create what their story is through how you're influencing the choices and options they have for solving the problems, huge difference. They'll remember the one that they collaborated with you on creating, right? Yes, and they'll have a stake of ownership in it. And this has been written about not just me; other people have written about this, as opposed to trying to remember your sales pitch. To repeat to their their colleagues, their stakeholder friends. Yeah. So it, it, having this this again this this change mindset is, and this is, yeah, you know, I sort of get in trouble when you know people have written these good books about storytelling and you know X number of stories you need to be able to tell every salesperson needs to be able to tell. Right. And I say you only need to be able to tell one story, <laughs> and that's the customer story. Yeah, I was going to say the one that matters to that customer. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's their story. It's, it's their, their vision story. of how they're going to how they're going to solve this problem and the value they're going to derive from having done that. And if you tell that story, well, that's a story to your point that your champion can retell easily inside because they helped create it. Yeah, it's true. And and I yeah you know, I use this this analogy of coaching because I think it works well. Uh, there's a lot of corollaries with sports teams and mm-hmm. players and how you need the right team to get things done and and so on and and i loved how you mentioned collaborating because it really is a collaborative process between you and your champion and sometimes multiple champions that have mm-hmm. to go to get things to happen and make progress and and we put so much stock in these champions and yet they they haven't been through your internal sales training they have they don't, barely know your solution um you know they talk to you for two or three hours at and then all of a sudden they want to go tell the world inside the organization and they, yeah, they, they tend to really do a poor job of it. Not because they're not enthusiastic, but because they're, they're brand new salespeople without even a sales background necessarily. <laughs> and they're out there selling your product internally. And, and it, it is one of the most challenging aspects of B2B sales is uh, when you've got an enthusiastic champion, it's great on the one hand. And on the other hand, if you don't know how to equip and, and help them effectively, uh, you're just, you're you're setting them up to fail. Well, yeah. And, um, well, but that's back back to the point though is that yeah, what you want them to sell is the vision of what it's going to be. Yep. Right. But if yep. you're having them trying to sell features and benefits, it's not going to happen. You're not yeah. going to be satisfied with that. But if they have to tell a story about, look, these guys have this great platform. We can accomplish these things that have been high on our priority list using yeah. it and we think we'll get a payback in 12 months well that's an easy story to tell you don't need no one's going to ask you well how does that feature work how does this feature work yep yeah it's it, it's uh helping them help you getting inside of their head and helping them tell the story about you know the their vision their future with you in it um and what it looks like with you in their future rather than your story so yeah, i like how you put it it's, it's their story uh, that is the one that matters to them. Yeah. Well, I, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, this is, this is a great, a great topic because, yeah, buyer, buyer enablement. Uh, I think it's the right book at the right time because it's, it's, I've just been a huge believer as you know from this conversation. It's just, yeah, it is about them. It's about them making a decision. It's about how do we help them? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. I, we talk about this Gartner diagram, you know, the spaghetti diagram about the buyer's journey and how it's not a linear process. And yeah, I've, on the show and other places, I have you know, hundreds of conversations a year with with senior sales leaders, and it's always like, well, okay, so how how have you adapted your selling process to reflect this buyer enablement journey that was outlined by Gartner? Yeah, yeah, and I think <laughs> and the answer is we haven't, we haven't done much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think it comes down to just practical practicality, which is what I try to deliver in this book: is just how do you actually do this? How do you how do you enable the buyers at different stages of the journey with the right kinds of, of things? Because uh, you can't just overload them with everything at once, which is a mistake that a lot of sales teams do or salespeople. But, um, and going back to your point about vision, selling the vision, you know, that's really important at the beginning, but they also have to go back and sell the implementation. They've got to sell the integrations. Mm-hmm. They've mm-hmm. got to sell, I mean, others, you know, but at first it's just about the vision. And so it's really important as the buying coach to understand at the beginning, what do they have to educate the other stakeholders on at the early stages versus middle and late stages, and then be really knowledgeable about what they need to, uh, what materials you have, what assets you have um, that they can use to do that effectively. Um, and and that's a lot of what buyer enablement is about is really trying to categorize, uh, at least setting the groundwork for buyer enablement is, is categorizing the job aids, you might say, that you have to give to the buyer at, at the right stages of of the the buying journey and one of the things i talk about as an example in the book is um as you know our our software company is focused on demo automation and mm-hmm. a lot of sales engineers for example think of the demo as just the big technical demo and we actually identify that there are many different types of demos that the buyers need at different stages of the buying journey. There's the vision demo, then they get what may be called a micro demo, which is more product oriented, but still in yep. kind of the vision stage. Then they go and do the standard demo. And then they might at that point be ready for a deeper dive in, you know, in person kind of technical demo from a sales engineer. Then there are these closing demos where they're just trying to decide they're you're trying they're trying to de-risk. So they're asking questions about uh, just implementation and GDPR and other mm-hmm. things. And then all throughout, there are, there are these just uh, what I call FAQ demos. And so I think whether it's a, an automated video demo or a PDF or a deck or whatever the asset might be, it's critical to understand where it belongs in that, um, in, in that buying process. And, and if you can, and, and the best buying coaches, the salespeople that that understand that and get the right information at the right times to the buying, to the to the champion, uh, I've seen just tend to win more often, and and it shortens the sales cycle too. Yeah, I I, I think that really sort of describes it. Is is you know if, again if you go back to the Gartner diagram, you know, one of the key elements in there is that 
is that various stakeholders will enter the process at different times. And so one of the key things I think of, of buyer enablement as the buyer coach is being mindful of that. And to your point, if you want to shorten a sales cycle, is you need to make sure that you don't get these last-minute surprises from unknown stakeholders that suddenly <laughs> materialize. That, And so, yeah, helping your buyer understand from your experience, your deep experience on this, how this is going to unfold. Yeah. Really becomes important. who needs important. to get involved. Yeah, who needs to get involved, when, so on. Because, yeah, you don't want you know, somebody from IT that you overlooked showing up just when you thought, well, hey, we're in the minute. we're in the presentation stage, and man, you know, this guy's got a big say in it, and he's still at the discovery stage. Yeah, that's right. You know, speaking of last minute uh, stakeholders, I, I just thought of an experience that I thought you might find interesting. In uh, in 2015, we were raising our Series A venture funding for mm-hmm. Consensus, and we had a I, a, a I will leave them unnamed a venture firm that had committed. <laughs> to a $10 million round uh, at a really good valuation. And I had spun down, because we signed the term sheet, I spun down all the all the other conversations. I asked them, you know, did this pass the investment committee? They said, yes. Um, we signed the term sheet, uh, you know, for 90 days, I think it was. We, we had 90 days to close. And we're running out of cash because we're, we're in growth mode. And I'm just timing this up, you know, to have maybe two sure. or three weeks worth of cash left by the time right. we close this round. And um, three days before we close the deal, yeah, I'm in Las Vegas at a convention, and I'm supposed to go on stage in about an hour. And I get a call from the main VC that I was working with, and uh, <laughs> he says, "He says we got to talk." I said, "What's going on?" He says, "Just call me." So I said, "Okay." So I went up to my hotel room, called him, and he said, "We're not going to do the deal." And we were in red lines at that point. We were pick- we yeah. were picking over, yeah. you know, does this word or that word. We were three days away from the close, and they said they were backing out. And I said, what's going on? And he said, one of the uh, LPs, the limited partners in the fund, doesn't like it. And I said, I thought you said it got past the investment committee. And he said, well, it did, but this LP wasn't available at the time. And he he uh, represents, his investments represent more than half of our $350 million fund. <laughs> and so he he was he was not available for the last two months or two and a half months or whatever, and um, and so now he just barely got his eyes on the deal and he doesn't like it. And I said, "You mean you're going to let this one guy nix this whole this ten million dollar investment?" And they uh, and they said, uh, yeah, "Yeah, unfortunately, our hands are tied." And I just thought, "Oh my gosh!" And, and it's not exactly the typical, but you know, it's the B two B. It wasn't a typical B two B sale, but but it it was the classic stakeholder popping up at the last minute. And I thought I had I knew enough about fundraising that I had I had kind of checked off all the boxes. But the reality was uh, there's more to learn. <laughs> I learned it the hard way. Oh yeah, well I think we all have stories like that. I mean, if you, <laughs> I mean I've got one I've told before about a big deal, big deal. I mean at at the time and and this was we were selling a satellite system that was going to be the first digital backbone for a nationwide uh, digital distribution to radio stations. And so it was a huge media company and, and we were trying to unseat the incumbent and yeah, we thought we had done it. (laughs) And everybody that, everybody that we talked to said we had done it. Yeah. There was that one person we probably should, we, we didn't know we were supposed to have talked to. We had uncovered that person. 
And uh, no, no, they decided they want to stay with the incumbent. And yeah, it was crushing because I, I, I was embarrassed. You know, I'd forecasted to the board, and and yeah, there was. We should have known, but we yeah. we didn't. <laughs> yeah, so there's no excuse. We should we should have we should have known. And this is why I think it's it's really important um, individually. You may not know in an organization, um, but it's I think it's really important to get the team together, um, especially your most experienced reps that have done a lot of closes in complex environments, and um, and, and and try to map out what does this process look like. Who are the stakeholders that almost always get involved, and you can say with a surety that if those stakeholders are not involved, you've got risk in the deal. Um, there mm-hmm. may be a deal here and there that slips through without that pattern matching, but it's rare. And um, and if you just close your eyes and try to ignore it, it's usually going to come to, come back to bite you. And I even go so far sometimes as to tell champions that I work with, because I, even though I've got a sales team that does the majority of our sales, I always like to have my hand in three or four deals mm-hmm. to, to stay close mm-hmm. to the go-to-market strategy. And and I will even say to some of my champions, um, you know, here, here are the people we've got to get involved to get this done and be effective because we're not only trying to get this decision made, but we've got to set up for a good implementation, which leads to a good adoption, renewal later. Um, and if they balk at that and they're not willing to go out and get those people, I sometimes will say, you know what, we're, we're not really able to move forward unless we can get these roles involved because here's what happens. If they don't get involved, in our case, it's the, one of them is the sales leader, for example, because we sell mm-hmm. first into pre-sales, into sales engineering, because right. they're the ones building the interactive video demos that are used by sales. But if they won't go out and get the sales leader that's going to end up having their teams use the platform involved, uh, we we pretty much put the brakes on the conversation until they're willing to do that because uh, without those sales leaders, right, the adoption typically falls flat, even if they make a decision. Yeah. And a lot of times they'll nix the deal before, uh, and, the, and the pre-sales leader doesn't know this, but the sales leader will get a whiff of it and say, hey, how come I wasn't consulted? And all of a sudden they take an adversarial position. And um, <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's one of those things where if you're confident enough, and that's, again, the hive mind, get everybody together, share the knowledge, put this process together so you can lean on the, the experience of your whole team. But if you're confident enough, enough it, it actually, this whole process builds trust uh, because if, if you're telling the buyer from our experience, this is what, these are the challenges you're going to run into, they don't want to run into these problems. I mean, they, they take a lot of risks to implement your solution, bring your, your solution to their organization. And, um, and if you're, if you're telling them, here's the whitewater rapids and here's the quicksand and all of that, that, that really helps them a lot. But again, counterintuitively, sometimes as salespeople, we don't want to, we don't want to be maybe too abrupt or direct. Uh, we feel like we're being too forceful if we, if we insist on certain things. And yet we're really the ones that need to ensure that the buying process ends safely, successfully, right? So <laughs> safely too. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think that, I, well, I yeah. think you're right. I mean, so yes, I mean, it's, it's the right approach to say, yeah, perhaps you're just not ready to move forward at this time without this, you know, if we can't get this information. Are these stakeholders involved or, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and I think a, a really interesting way for sellers to, to look at this and is, is, uh, yeah, I, a couple years ago came up with this, this, uh, acronym for the four jobs you need to accomplish on every interaction with a with a buyer 
and the acronym was BALD, B-A-L-D, which is, you know, be human, ask great questions, listen to understand, deliver mm-hmm. good value. Mm-hmm. And, good. and the thing is, is that most people sort of look at that and say, well, okay, well, that's always about discovering their needs. Well, discovery is not just about their requirements and their needs. It's about yours as well. It's about them. How do they buy, right? Who's involved with this decision? All these other things. How are they going to implement this? How are we going to integrate with their existing systems? That's all discovery. And you can never know enough about that. So that's why every time you interact with a buyer, you have to have a discovery component in there. You need to you need to understand more fully every time you interact with a buyer on all these dimensions. And I think the thing that that you know is implicit in what you're saying, but I think you know we'll make it really clear to people listening is that that one of the greatest sources of value to to a buyer, and Gardner talks about this in their research too, is progress. They've got this job they're trying to get done. Yeah. And if you have an interaction with them that as a result of that interaction, they're not some measure closer to being able to make their purchase decision, then arguably there was no value for them in that that interaction. And so helping them understand how to effectively buy this product, that's a source of real value for buyers. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was you and in our interaction we had a, a year year and a half ago or so um, that was talking about bringing value to every conversation where mm-hmm. every conversation that you have needs to have a return on investment basically right. for the time they invest in the conversation. I loved that idea. Um, and it, and it really helps to think about how to set up a specific conversation. And, and I like how the, you tie this idea of, of value or return on investment in a conversation to making progress towards a buying decision because ultimately that's what everybody wants. Um, and one of the things I've been trying to get my own team to do uh, more re- more religiously, you might say, or more consistently is um, is is inviting the buyers to make a, uh, specific commitments um, in every conversation mm-hmm. um, because of the course. commitments are what drive the value, right? The, yes. may, drive the progress. And it could be a commitment to make a decision by a certain date. It could be a commitment to go share an uh, interactive video demo with uh, some other stakeholders or to... Uh, whatever it might be there, you know, hundreds of different types of uh, things depending on where they are. But but it, that's one of the uh, ways to bring, to know that your your conversation or that moment in the buyer's journey has value to the buyer is if they're willing to make a commitment. If they aren't willing to make that commitment, you haven't provided enough value in that moment, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, everything in sales is an exchange. We're not, it's not a one-way thing, right? It's not like we're just giving you something of value. No, I'm right. giving you value. What are you, what are you getting, giving me in return? Yeah, you gave gonna, me time. I'm do? giving you yeah. value in return. In return for getting that value, what are you giving me? And so your plan for every call, every interaction should be, I, as, you know, based on what's happened previously, this is, what I, this is the value I plan to deliver during this interaction. And these are right. the commitments the customer is going to make in exchange for receiving it. Right. Yep. Yeah. And you, you do that consistently in every call and you, you'll see traction go through the roof and sales cycle shorten. And um, I think one of the, the things that people overlook is, is that you have to kind of map out 
what those tasks are, the commitments are mm-hmm. for different roles in the buying group. So a lot of times we just think of what do I want my champion to do? But there are many different roles that end up uh, playing a part and and we often don't give them enough uh, attention in terms of really understanding what are those what do those other roles have to do and mm-hmm. how do we how do we influence them doing that? A lot of times again, we don't have access to those stakeholders so it's the the champion um, and and on a, on a side note, one of the things I talk about in the book is how to truly identify a champion and uh, you know the the most consistent way is just do they follow through on their commitments? One, will they commit first and two, do they follow through? If they don't follow through, you don't really have a champion. And th- and one of the things that they have to do is go commit other people in the stakeholder group t- to get things done. Um, so, you know, it's that it's that detailed understanding of the buying process and 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 what roles are are taking those actions that yep. that, that that then drive the whole the whole journey. Well, I think the other thing to that point, which I think is is a great a great point, is that um, you know we have we have this this misperception i think in general in sales that because we have more stakeholders involved that there's more of a consensus involved in this decision and while theoretically i think that's the case i think real life is that anytime you get a group of people together <laughs> you're not going to get a consensus yeah <laughs> well some people are more dominant than others yeah and true. and uh Steve Martin, professor at USC, done some research on this, is that, you know, there is a bully, so to speak, quote, unquote, <laughs> a bully. And, yeah, you you need to know where your champion sits in relation to that bully and whether <laughs> you need that bully as your champion. And there may be more than one, but the fact is if, if, if you know, there's 12 people involved in making a decision, 12 stakeholders involved in a decision, and and your champion is timid and self-effacing and doesn't speak right. up in meetings, then you've got a problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, that would be another great example of what what is a champion, right? Can they go out and speak up, speak out? And, uh, and then what do you do if you if you what do you do if you get that bully stakeholder <laughs> on there? I, there's a I, I don't know if we have time for this, but there's a little story I tell in a book from one of our investors named Adam Slovic. Um, and I used to work for a large, a large uh, database company back in the, I think, 90s. And there was, I think, a $30 million deal on the line. And and the salesperson, I think there were three people making a decision. And the sales, and they they had to have unanimity to make mm-hmm. a decision. And two were in favor, and one was vehemently opposed. And so uh, they couldn't get past that that bully, basically. And uh, so what the the salesperson did was he he hired a recruiting company to recruit that person <laughs> away from the buyer the, the customer <laughs> which i thought was I, I mean it's a little extreme but i love i love it i love i, I love the uh taking control of the deal right you know, that is you, initiative i love that yeah and they got him hired away i mean he spent like eighty thousand dollars uh paying the recruiter to get this person hired away uh and then got their you know, thirty million dollar close when the new person just kind of came on and went along with the two senior people. Nice. And, All uh, right, yeah, right. Take, yeah, a yeah, take a lesson. Take a lesson. Yeah, I we can't always do that, but I love the I love the uh, moxie and the the oh, attitude yeah. and the stance behind that. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, I've so I've done the other. Where I've 
<laughs> tried to get a stakeholder fired that was standing in the way. Oh, <laughs> I guess that's another way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought mean, you were going to say you, you drove to the stakeholder's house and, and did something on towards. <laughs> no, there's, there's similar stories, but no, nothing. That, uh, I mean, it was forced once by a boss to call key stakeholder. We were waiting for an order from this company and uh, forced to call somebody like, 8 p.m. on Christmas Eve at his house. Oh my gosh, are you serious? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Oh my I, goodness. I was just slightly less unhappy than the the buyer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, oh my goodness. We did get the deal, but uh, the relationship was never bad, the same. Bad money. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's, a, that's all right, crazy. Garen. Great way to end. Good stories. How? Well, one last point, Alec. The, uh, message me while we were talking. Flathead Lake is the largest natural freshwater lake west of the Mississippi. What? 200 square uh, miles of water and 185 miles of shoreline. 280 so, uh, square miles of water. So how many square miles are there in Utah Lake? I, I didn't look that up. <laughs> you got to hire You're on your own on that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to have to look that up, but uh, thanks for the correction on that. Now I'll have yeah, to say it's well, the I, second largest. It's still a beautiful largest. lake. <laughs> I'm sure. Sure. So, oh, I do. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, Garen, for people who want to learn more about uh, what you guys are doing at Consensus and learn more about your book, how can they connect with you? Yeah, so if you want to learn about our intelligent demo automation software, you can go to goconsensus.com. And more about the book, Selling is Hard, Buying is Harder, just go to Amazon is the best place to look for that. Perfect. Garen, as always, a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Likewise. Thanks, Andy. Good talking to you. Okay, friends, that this, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm ever so grateful for your support of this program. And I want to thank Garen Hess for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate that. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.